Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Bryant and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud native platforms, creating effective developer workflows and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Dave Sudia, Senior DevOps Engineer at GoSpotCheck. I've been following Dave's work for the past couple of years and I was lucky enough to get to see in person his presentation with colleague Tony Ribb at KubeCon San Diego last year, where they focused on the GoSpotCheck move from Heroku onto Kubernetes. After the presentation, Dave dropped by the DataWire booth and my colleague Rafi and I had a great chat with him. He clearly understood both the theory and the practicality of building a platform for an organization that is constantly evolving and Rafi and I learned a bunch. Today we're talking about how Dave and his team at GoSpotChecker focused on enabling engineers to develop apps effectively in a local development environment, assembling a Panzer-like Kubernetes platform with open source components, particularly CNCF components, and enabling self-service around the bigger picture of API contract testing, infrastructure provisioning, and deployment. Hello, Dave, and welcome to the Living on the Edge podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Could you briefly introduce yourself for the listeners and share a recent career highlight as well, please? Yeah, I'm Dave Sudia. I'm a senior DevOps engineer at GoSpotCheck. We're a startup in, based in Denver, Colorado. And I think the career highlight uh, was being on Deserted Island DevOps conference that happened in Animal Crossing a couple months ago. <laughs> awesome. I, I don't know that I'm ever going to top that. Yeah, that was super fun. It was put together by Austin Parker, who's in Dev Relations at Lightstep. And uh, yeah, we, we went to his island in Animal Crossing, and he had this crazy open broadcast studio set up where... We were talking in Zoom and he overlaid our audio onto the capture from his Switch so you could watch us presenting in Animal Crossing. And if you haven't seen it, I'll send you a link. It was just the most fun, wacky thing. It was great. Fantastic. So, you know, you and I chatted quite a bit in San Diego last year at KubeCon, uh, where you presented with your colleague, Tony Ribb, uh, Balancing Power and Pain, Moving a Startup from a Paz to Kubernetes. Like, I learned a bunch from that talk fantastic talk. We then caught up on the InfoQ podcast and went a bit deeper into those topics. So I'm guessing today really is kind of part three of our discussion. But I was thinking for today, it'd be good to set a bit of context for listeners of, of the GoToSpotCheck platform, but then dive a bit more into the evolution of the platform. Because I know you famously said you're sort of assembling components versus building a platform. They're very different things, which I, I agree with. And I think you've got some really great insight there. So just to set the context, was running the GoSpotCheck app on a PaaS a good experience in the early years? Yeah, to kind of recap, right, we, we started on Heroku. We ran there for many years. We were one of their largest customers by the time we started moving off. And their product is great. There are many things that we still sort of miss about their product that we're now trying to rebuild in, you know, internally. It That is where I think most people should start, whether it's, you know, App Engine or Beanstalk or Heroku or, you know, any of those other kind of more pass type offerings. I think the thing I said in the last one is when you start there, you don't need my team. You know, that, that's where your money is going is is you're, you're sort of saving that economy of having to have a bunch of people who really understand how operations work. But it's at a certain point, you're going to get to a point where you need someone who really understands how operations work. You need features that are being offered by those platforms and then you got to move. So we shifted to Google Kubernetes engine as the primary place our apps landed. But what you lose is a lot of the sugar of a platform yeah. as a service. You lose the ease and the convenience. And last November, we had a hackathon and one of our lead uh, developers who, who runs a team came up and said, I don't really know exactly what I'm going to be doing for this hackathon, but it's going to be making this easier. This is all too hard. Mm. And so I heard that 
loud and clear. You know, making Kubernetes easier <laughs> was Brian Lyles' keynote at KubeCon last yeah, year. It's not something that's going to get fixed in a hackathon, right? Yeah. And so that's kind of, that's our push this year. We kind of glued a bunch of tools together. How do we turn them into a, a more cohesive experience? It's never going to provide the convenience of Git push Heroku master, yep. right? Be, for a number of reasons. But but how do we provide something that is just better, a little more seamless, a little easier to use? Nice. Just take a step back. Initially, the, the reason you sort of looked at moving off Heroku was purely scale, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was scale and because of scale feature. One of the big drivers was you know, we used their, all their Postgres instances and we just got to a point where the way that our queries were running, the performance characteristics of their databases just could not keep up with what we needed. And so we needed to shift our databases off. And then it was a cost perspective. Mm. When you're paying for my team, you shouldn't also be paying for Heroku, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like yeah. then you're, then you're spending way too much. Yeah. It makes total sense. So you mentioned about sort of assembling the the parts there, which I thought, you know, the, the KubeCon talk, I'll link that in the show notes because it was just a fantastic talk by you and Tony there. But how did you go about choosing the various components that you kind of mashed together on the on the sort of V1 of what is becoming the platform? Sure. A lot of it was based on what existed. A great example is we ended up with Harness as our continuous deployment platform, as opposed to Spinnaker, which is the open source one that, that mm. you know, it's part of the continuous deployment foundation now. And, and, but a large part of that was we were already on circle. And at the time Spinnaker only supported Travis and, you know, Spinnaker came out of Netflix. And so it really supported the AWS stack yeah. and we were on Google. And we also made an early commitment to go with open source standards. So Prometheus metrics initially, you know, Jaeger open tracing now open telemetry, but just sort of those those things. And so we ran a lot of those things internally initially until more commercial support for them came out. And now we're slowly shifting to vendors that support those standards. But but the nice thing about it is we haven't had to change any engineering effort to suddenly shift to this kind of metric because you know we're we're using Prometheus metrics and now there are people who will accept Prometheus metrics and open telemetry traces and and that kind of thing. So that that was the large driver of it was, I, I don't know, it's it, a thing I said, I've been saying recently is, you know, infrastructure is an MVP right now. <laughs> you know, it's like, we very, you know, when you talk about like, we very much hacked together a bunch of stuff. And that's what you do when you make the first <laughs> round of your product. Yeah, yeah, right. Totally. And, and that's, that's the biggest thing for me is like, uh, one of the best talks I went to at KubeCon last year was by Pinterest. And I don't, I'll, I'll find it and send you the link so you can post it here. But a team at Pinterest basically built a wrapper around Spinnaker to make deploying easier. And, and they had a product manager, they had a UX designer, mm. they had backend people, they had front end people, right? It was a product team that built this internal continuous deployment platform. And, and that's the difficulty we're kind of facing this year is my company had 120 people until all of this happened around COVID and stuff. And we had a 20% layoff and I don't have a product manager for this effort. I don't have a platform team for this effort. My team is two people and 0.1 time from a manager that used to be an individual contributor. And so we're trying to centralize our processes and build more standardized opinionated ways of doing things in a decentralized way. So that's, 
it's it's an experiment. We're going to see how it goes. Yeah, interesting, interesting. What would you say is the most important thing you focused on since we last spoke? Because you, know, you mentioned you're sort of moving towards like a proper platform now with the constraints you've mentioned. But what was the most important thing you tackled? Yeah, so the first approach we've had is to break it into phases of development. And we started with local development. We kind of figured, okay, well, anything we would go from there would build on tools that we picked from the previous phase. We kind of didn't want to start with the end in mind. We wanted to start with like, what would we use to to do it locally? Okay, cool. Are those reusable for the next piece, right? If we pick a good security scanning tool or something for, for local development, can that be used in CI and then and CD mm-hmm. or something, you know, yeah. that kind of thinking, right? Or a really great example is we've landed on Helm and I'll kind of talk about the stack in a sec, but we've landed on Helm as the way that we're going to package things, you know, our deployments and standardize our deployments. So then that informs, great, now we can use Helm in the continuous deployment pipeline. We, we can swap mm-hmm. it in for everything that we've had previously. So we focused on local development first. We've come up with a stack that we think works pretty well for local development. And the way we're doing local development is we're not doing it locally. We're going to be doing it in the cluster. Interesting. Yeah. So when we started this, I did have a product manager resource for about two months. And what he helped me do was personas. So we interviewed a cross section of QA, backend engineers, front end engineers, mobile engineers, support, because one of the struggles we've had in the last year and a half as we've moved more into continuous delivery is I had our tier two support manager go, how do we support continuous delivery? You know, mm-hmm. if you're going to yeah, be doing yeah, experiments yeah. that could break prod all the time, it's a great question. Does, right? What does that do to us? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'd love an answer from anyone who has one. I put, <laughs> put it out on Twitter a while ago and got a pretty good answer, but we're still sort of figuring it out for ourselves. But we've wanted to involve support more in being able to get to the same resources that engineers have. So that's not quite all put together because we're not quite at that phase yet. So in doing the persona interviews, one of the number one things I heard back was the way you could make my life more easier is to give me 64 cores on my laptop. Because (laughs) what we had these teams doing was they wrote all their Docker files and then they were using Docker Compose locally to spin up a development environment. Mm. And so, and that works for the first couple services but once you get to like seven you know plus their attendant databases and kafkas and you know all the the glue between the services you just hit docker compose up and the fans come on on your laptop right (laughs) yes and so in doing this we've tried to reimagine what the development process looks like Mm -hmm. in a cloud native way Right. Like, let's not just take all our preconceptions around how you do local development. Then I push my image and then it goes through the staging and prod deployment pipeline. I, I kind of challenge people the question, like, what if we just push to prod? Mm, Maybe we yeah. shouldn't, but why not? Like, let's let's question that. Right. Like, because mm. there are people, there are companies right now that do do that. So. Oh, yeah. So no one was quite ready for that sea change. <laughs> but but what we did get to was. Yeah, let's just dev- like let's not have local development. Let's give you a namespace. You know, I, the service preview product from from DataWire in in Ambassador is looking really promising in this space as well. That's still something that we're considering down the line. But our stack right now in trying to get things 
easier as well as a little more seamless is we're using cloud native build packs in place of Docker. Mm, nice, nice, yep. We're using Heroku, uh, irony of ironies, we're using Heroku's <laughs> cloud native build packs. <laughs> nice, which yeah. makes sense, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, most of our Rails apps yeah. tra- transitioned really easily. <laughs> um, and then B, uh, and this is the, the key one, is we do a lot of Go and we have a lot of private modules. Mm-hmm. And they are the only public build pack I can find right now that has an immediately obvious way to pass in a credential ah. to pull private Git uh, repos yeah, as a yeah. Go module. So that was that was actually a huge driver. And a couple of my engineers complained um, going, oh, these images, are, they're all Ubuntu. They're going to be huge. And I was like, yeah, but they're all Ubuntu. You only have to pull that part once, right? Like it's due to that. Mm-hmm. Once you get the Docker layer cached, if we're all using the same base images, because we're all using Heroku, like there's a reason Heroku does this. Heroku's not wasting bandwidth, you know, pulling mm, yeah. Ubuntu over and over again. And then we get built-in security updates. And, you know, because Heroku's managing the build pack stack. That's nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So I, I trust them mainly because they've got Ian Coldwater, who I know now oh, pretty yes. decently, in charge of their security and Kubernetes security. So yeah, yeah, totally. So... I'll pull Heroku's build packs without really thinking twice about it. So yeah, so we're using build packs in place of Docker. We're using Helm. And the big paradigm shift we had with Helm, when we started this whole journey, we looked at Helm and we're like, oh, okay, well, we're going to have to write this Helm chart for every single app. Mm -hmm. And when we went with Harness, Harness sort of had like a built-in sort of Kubernetes concept. They had a V1 thing that was a little easier. You kind of check some boxes that we immediately had to move past into their advanced mode because we already had requirements beyond the, the box checking. And then they came out with like a V2 version of Kubernetes, which was basically just write your own YAMLs. And so we did that. And then we ended up writing our own YAMLs for every single app. And, and one of the things that was too hard and took too long about all this is developers, anytime they want to spin up a new app, they had to make a harness service. They had to go copy the five files we use for every Go service out mm. of the last one, paste it into the new yeah, one, yeah. <laughs> change the values, right? And and coming back to the infrastructure right now is an MVP concept. That's fine. What we got out of that was we, you know, we were able to look at the seventeen Go apps we'd made and go, these are all pretty much the same. Okay, it seems like we've landed on a consistent way of doing things. All right, or we found, you know, or if they're not exactly the same, they share 95% of their DNA and we mm-hmm. can get the best practices of all of these. And so now we're writing a single like GSC Go Helm chart that this is the way we do Go apps. And nice. then that single Helm chart can be used for any new Go app. So that's sort of the way that we're simplifying the process is instead of having to write a Docker file every now time now, you run pack. Instead of having to go and make all your deployment files, you use our standardized Helm chart. We're, I'm, mm, I like it. The thing I'm doing after this is I'm going to do a review on our first draft of the Rails Helm chart. That one's much more complex because we have cron jobs and workers and of course, yeah, know, yeah. like all the stuff that doesn't come from a pretty simple Go web API. So, so then you you have the Helm chart, and then the way that we're doing facilitating local development right now is via Scaffold, and Scaffold mm-hmm. just ties Pack and Helm together. So, Scaffold, if you haven't heard of it, is this really cool tool. You you give it a little configuration file basically saying, here's how I want you to build my image and here's how I want you to deploy my image. And that can be via a Docker file and kubectl with YAML files, or it can be, in our case, with 
pack and helm, and then you run scaffold dev, and it watches your code. And every time you save a file, it hot loads your code into the cluster. Mm. So you're coding locally, but the changes yep. are happening in the cluster. Yes. Nice. And and it takes, you know, it's not quite as fast as literal local development because it has to rebuild the image and redeploy it every time. But rebuilding the image, since we're using, you know, I mean, it's Docker, it caches really well. And mm. we're using build packs, but under the hood, it's just Docker. So you're building a seven megabyte file probably every, or, you know, layer every time. And then that pushes up pretty instantly. And then it redeploys very quickly because it's just pulling that that one layer that's not cached. So mm. it's been working pretty smooth. I have a public code repo example that I'll send you that Ooh, you can link yeah. in the show yeah, notes that is that. just, it's on my GitLab and it's like GitLab slash the develop Nick slash scaffold example. And yeah, and then you can go see, kind of see it in action. But it's it's looking like it's going to work pretty smoothly for us. So that's been the biggest piece. I mean, we're still sort of gluing tools together, but we're gluing them together in a more intelligent way. Mm. The tools that are available are just infinitesimally better <laughs> and more powerful. Yeah, yeah. You know, neither pack nor scaffold existed when we started, right? Yeah. So, so that's a big piece of it. One thing I've learned from you, actually, Dave, is that several times you said to me, if you can wait six months for a tool in the cloud space, do. Because six months' that, time, all new, yeah. right? Yeah, that was my talk at the Animal Crossing conference. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Perfect, yeah. yeah I, just, I just took that and expanded it to 30 minutes. And and when it, within that, my example was Service Mesh. You know, mm-hmm. three or four years ago, I was going like, oh, you know, Envoy is amazing, but it's so hard. You got to write your own implementations of the API yeah. servers. And then now Linkerd install, <laughs> you know, like it, it's so, oh, I don't like Linkerd. I want to play with Istio. Great, use Superglue and you just... Superglue, delete Linkerd yeah, and yeah. install Istio, and you know it's it's insane uh, how much better the tooling and more powerful the tooling has become. So, so the availability of the tooling is is a big part of it, but also now you know we cannot repeat ourselves. We have enough examples of how we want to do things that we can find those abstraction layers, and we're mm-hmm. starting to just write. You know, one of the things I've been working on the last couple of days is a script uh, repo called local tool installation. And it's just a script that installs kubectl and pack and helm and scaffold and NVM and RVM. And, you know, <clears throat> and this is not mm. a mind blowing thing. There are many, many places where that is the first thing someone wrote. <laughs> but we had stuff similar to that for Heroku. But when you completely change your entire stack over the course of two years, you just got to yeah, yeah. rewrite those things. And you can't write them until, you know, what you want to do. So that's sort of what we're, we're doing this year. I, you know, we don't have a platform team. We're still pretty small. We're not writing a whole bunch of internal tooling to create a platform. It's still putting together open source projects, but I think in a much more intelligent and, like and seamless way. That's something I really picked up from the there. There's something I've definitely talked about in the, the DataWire team and I've talked about with other folks as well, is this notion of understanding the personas. I think that's really important because you, you've highlighted there, developers' requirements are different than ops, different than support and so forth. But you really have to treat what you're building as a as a product, yeah? Yes, yeah, 100%. And we've had a platform team internally before and they built some amazing stuff that nobody used. <laughs> Interesting. Because it, you know, it was built for them and... Yeah, and yeah. the the people who end up on platform teams are the people who are super into Vim 
and <laughs> yeah. you know and and thoroughly understand their own rc files and yeah, yeah. you know i mean and i'm one of those people so please don't take it as i'm you know making fun of that like but i use vim bindings in vs code on my linux box now <laughs> running a custom distro of ubuntu but i'm that person right and i can't write tooling for me because i'm not the the person who just wants to ship and that was a big piece of that persona investigation we did was, you know, we don't have a platform team. A lot of those people still work for us, but they're distributed, right? Like they they got pushed out to be often like senior engineers on, on product teams. We even have senior engineers who lead teams who just want to ship it. Like yep. the guy who came up in the hackathon and said, I just want this to be easier is one mm-hmm. of those people. Brilliant engineer. Doesn't really want to get deep into the weeds of tooling. Totally yeah, fine. Yeah. Right. And so so that sort of leads to how we're trying to build this in a distributed way, which is, you know, first we kind of had to get the cultural agreement of, yes, we want an opinionated centralized way of doing things, because mm-hmm. for a long time, you know, teams really just wanted to go do things their own way. Yeah. And then they kind of came back and went, why is everything so hard and slow? And we're like, because everyone wants to do it their own way. Um, <laughs> yep. And then you get and then you can't expect my team to just immediately know how to do it. But if you have those people, you have the people who want to get deep in the weeds of config. Instead of doing it their own way or you know on their own repos, what we kind of got the cultural agreement of is we're going to have a centralized way of doing things. This is the way. Mm-hmm. And and then if you are a config wonk, you go contribute to those repos. Mm-hmm. And if you're someone who is not, you just use them. Right? Yep. And both things are equally valid, but then we are leveraging the the developers who are deploying this stuff to help you know and to build the tooling because that that was another Mm -hmm. thing is i think a a common disconnect if you're not doing things in a product-oriented way or or if you're doing things the way sort of originally we were where it's like my team the you know we've we've changed our name from devops to cloud ops to make it clear we don't do everything but feature development Mm. you know we kind of we're building on this tooling and we're doing it with a lot of communication with developers, but it's like you end up with tooling that doesn't reflect reality of how people work because the people who write yeah. it aren't the people doing the work. Yep. Right. That's the whole thing of DevOps is. Yes. Yeah. Well said. Right. Is that the people building the tooling are the people who use it because they're the people who know what it ought to be. So that, that's been the biggest piece, leveraging the decentralized resources we have in this organization to build centralized tools. And, and I'd say, that all sounds great and idealistic and we got you know six people who were all in for the first round of this and they've all kind of fulfilled their initial commitment and now we're looking for the next five or six people and that is a much more uphill struggle um, <laughs> but i do but but we had a buy-in from the executive vice president in charge of engineering so i mean it's going to happen but we're definitely still having struggles around enthusiasm and you know there's no, no actual one likes change right change is hard yeah, and it's also, you know, there's no actual time allotted for this work. Mm. So people are doing it in their spare time. And I'd, so I'd say that given that in six months we have put together the body of work we need to do and we've gotten like a phase done with mm-hmm. some pretty solid tooling, like I'm I'm pretty happy. And that in the middle of an economic downturn and a yeah, pandemic yeah. Hard times. And, and the craziest overall political and socioeconomic and cultural times that I've that have occurred in my lifetime. You know, there are a lot of distractions going on right now. <laughs> so yes. I'm pretty happy with what we built. 
Yeah, it sounds fantastic, uh, Dave. And I'm really impressed in some ways that you focused on the local developer experience. I chatted to Gene Kim a couple of weeks ago, super privileged to chat to Gene. And one thing that he said is developer productivity is so, so important. But anecdotally, my experience of working with companies is the developer experience is often an afterthought. I mean, we build all these fantastic systems, you know, we're doing all the best practice stuff, we're using cloud and so forth. But where the work actually gets done, like where the rubber meets the road, is often like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll think about that later. But you've clearly invested early on in making sure people can write the code easy, test it easily and get it out to customers. Yeah, that's that's the goal with this round two. Because I think round one was very much that. We got all the pipelines set up and we got all the infrastructure set up and, and exactly what you're saying. And then we've kind of had to come back and then someone stood up and said, this is too much. This yeah, is too hard. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And and I think the key there is we listened. Agreed completely. Yeah. Yes. And and yeah, it's now that is the priority is how do we make this easy? The the next two big chunks we're tackling are security specifically the the developer side of security or what we've kind of determined to be the developer side, which is, are your packages up to date? Are the yeah. containers, we sort of handled build packs, but we're still going to be scanning and doing active work there. But figuring out where that divide is, we kind of are feeling like containers lands on my team, app, app dependencies lands on the dev team. So, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because they are closer, you know, when I was a developer, like do a lot of Java stuff. When I brought in a dependency, that was kind of on me to make sure that that was a up-to-date valid dependency right yeah that doesn't have like five critical cves in it so and we have tooling for that it's not super easy to use or convenient so you know the next round is how do we make this super easy to use and convenient right or as as easy to use convenient as possible since there's always that trade-off and then the other big chunk we're tackling is observability we have six places to go right now for metrics and traces and logs and and everything but this comes back to developer productivity and developer experience. And that's literally the name for this effort is developer experience. That's the name yes, of the board. Yes. The The goal is you run a script, you get a, a project generated that the base code is there, but not only the base code, but a script, you you know, the, the Git hooks for, you know, running security and check, linting and test checks and yeah, stuff before yeah. you commit. Yes. Your dashboards for prod are created from the day you make your project, mm-hmm. right? Because we just, like, we use Sumo Logic right now for for all our observability stuff. And so when you run that thing, it hits an API and makes the dashboards you're going to need for your service, you know, at least some generic ones, right? Like yeah. around, you know, rate or duration or something. But like, that, that's sort of my end goal. And then you start developing against the cluster, and then you use the same Helm chart for stage and prod, et cetera. But that it's to it's to turn it into a true smooth pipeline. I like that a lot, Dave. I like that a lot. Something um, I thought about, and you and I were briefly talking off mic about this, is how do you handle the interactions between microservices? Because obviously, you know, we aim for you know highly cohesive, loosely coupled systems, but it, yeah. you know things have clearly got to talk to each other for for it to be a system. So when I'm doing that local coding, are you running all of the other services in the cluster, or are you stubbing out some APIs, that kind of thing? So. Where we've kind of landed, and this was a collaborative effort, and I, I think a key key thing to say here is everything I'm relating has been the result of multiple people talking about it. You know, again, getting away from like, my team just decides things. So we sent out a survey and kind of said like, uh, and in fact, I didn't send out a survey. 
the lead engineer from one of our app teams sent out a survey because she owned that story right around discovering this stuff. She owned a story around like, what are we currently doing and using and where do we feel like the boundaries of our testing are? So the goal is sort of maybe real local development development, like you're writing unit tests and then it's a certain level, you're writing contract tests, right? Mm, Before you start interacting with other services. So if you're using gRPC, you're writing against those contracts. You know, off mic, you you mentioned Pact. I really love Pact. We had some consultants who came in and used Pact on one service and it didn't really take off, but I keep bringing it up every Mm. couple months because I really deeply believe in contract-based API development. But yeah, you write to those contracts and you do as much testing as you can without actually making any calls out to anything else. The way we're envisioning this right now is uh, it depends on the team how this would work because we have teams that are truly microservice-y small enough where you really only have one person working on a given service at a time. And in that case, it makes total sense to just be swapping the thing that's in dev with your current version. We also have teams like our professional services team where we have six people all working on one thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, they all have namespaces. And I'm not going to say this is easy. Like right now, we're literally still in the middle of trying to figure out exactly how much of our entire distributed monolith do we deploy to every namespace, you know? So something I've struggled with too. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a tricky problem. And, And you just, you end up cutting the line between every developer needs to keep their entire namespace up to date for every app at all times, or a weird hybrid, like, well, these apps are common between all the ones that would get deployed to namespaces, but those ones are getting, you know, it's not, I'm not going to say that's easier that we've solved it. I'll come back in a couple months. (laughs) 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 But for the, for the truly microservice oriented teams, yeah, you can pretty much just swap what you're working on in dev And at that point, yeah, I mean, hopefully you would have pretty high confidence because you've written your unit tests, you've written your contract level integration tests where you're, you're, you know, writing against mocks or stubs, right? And then you would, and then you would go into a live environment. And that was kind of how people were operating, except the live environment was initially on their laptop. And that just ceases to make sense at a certain point. So we don't have that fully nailed down, but that's kind of where, where we're at. And then the other big struggle with gRPC in, in particular is how do you make that a smooth experience? Because let me tell you, we have, you know, for for a technology that's supposed to make it so that everyone works off of a single set of canonical contracts, we already have a V1 and V2 repo. And we have one <laughs> oh, yeah. team that went off and we're experimenting with V2 before we went to V2 and they have their own that they have to migrate over. And, you know, and, and then another piece of it for me is we, we use Uber's uh, proto tool container to do all the compilation and so we have a repo where people commit the contracts and then its CI process compiles the gRPC code for, for all the various languages and commits that over to another repo. Mm, interesting. And now for, for Go, you just point to that repo and that's your module. But for Java, for Ruby, for Python, people are having to copy paste that code over it, right? Like there's no way to there's no really great way of getting that code. NPM is a little easier because NPM, you can also resolve a package to a Git repository. Mm-hmm. So, but even then that's not great. Like we'd like it to be in an artifactory or some, you know, something somewhere where people can pull it as a native NPM package. Yeah, so, yeah, so I've been working on a tool for the last year 
It's mostly internal, although I got permission to open source it last year. And so I'm sort of in the process of moving it over to being an open source repository. That's it on GitHub slash GoSpotCheck slash ProtoFact. And so I've got Ruby done. My initial run with Java was actually doing it all with Scala because we don't have any Java engineers, but we have some data platform type people who all write in Scala. So he's like, oh yeah, just use SBT. And here's this whole complex SBT thing. So I'm trying to convert oh, that no, over S- to... SBT, simple build tool, anything but simple, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. So I'm trying to convert that over to Maven, but I don't, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've worked on Java very little in my life. And when I did, it was with Gradle. So I'd love help with that. Uh, I've got a, like a half done PR for that. And then we're going to add, this is actually coming up as a real priority now because we are started fully consolidating our, our gRPC stuff. So I have to work on that more in the next couple of months. So hopefully in the, the next couple of months, that'll be more of a fully fleshed thing. I want to have similar to uh, proto tool. I want to have, you know, pre-built Docker containers that are out there that are public that people can just use. And then ideally we have like e- equally versioned packages of every contract out, you know, that people can just pull and be confident that their contracts are all the same version and can talk to each other correctly. And cause that's like the hardest part of that whole stack comes back to the, like the build pipeline and devopsy tooling stuff. Yeah. Like, GRPC yeah. is great, but it becomes, it's like, it's ironically easier to use if you're a single person or a small team of like three people, <laughs> yeah. you know, at, at the scale that you actually need it for, it's really hard to use. I guess the challenge I've had with a lot of these things is the releasing part of it or the synchronizing. So you've got say V1, V2, and there's yeah. obviously good practices you can do in terms of, you know, backwards compatibility, but sometimes you just need to make a break and change. And yeah. how do you do that in lockstep with all your services? I made a bunch of mistakes with shared entity models, for example, when I first, sure. my first microservice system, where suddenly when we changed the main model, we had to redeploy all the services. And I was like, oh, that's a, I've highly coupled that accidentally. Yeah. Feature flags. <laughs> as is yeah, yeah that's probably the next thing that that's another thing that's on the list for this year we we were using launch darkly for a while and never really used the full capability of that platform i think it's a mm-hmm. great platform for what it does but it's like we didn't really maybe we even needed feature flags but we weren't using them to the extent that we uh should have been or or could have been maybe but i think we're we're rapidly getting to the point where that is now becoming an issue especially cuz we have services talking to each other across responsible teams we sort of have three products, but they all, there are points of interface between all of them. And then, and then there's been a lot of talk recently from the product side about rapid experimentation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all, yeah. all I heard was feature flags, you know. Yeah. Um, canary so, launching pops up a lot. And I did where we see, you know, with Ambassador, we see a lot of folks talking about canary launching, dark launching, parallel yeah. runs, this kind of thing. Yeah. Progressive deployment is the term I've heard now for the, yeah, the James uh, Governor and progressive yep. delivery. We talk about a lot. Yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I got that off the podcast that I listened to with you. Oh, awesome, awesome. Yeah, that's right. I walked away from that. Read, read James Governor, Progressive Delivery. Yeah, so yeah, I, I think that's a hard problem. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I don't have a great answer. It's, I, it's I good to hear you. you say that too, Dave, because I've struggled with that. I've, that was five years ago I did it, and I'm still struggling with it now. So it's yeah, no, I mean, as we've because because at some point, like we do have a bunch of V1 gRPC contracts out there, and we're going to have to move to the V2, and and we have talked about it in depth about how we would do that and and it does involve a lot of cross-team coordination yes and what yeah, we feel yeah. like it looks like right now is that basically every team would have to basically do a, an immutable double implementation of the next set of services and then and then probably late on a saturday night 
as magical of a world of continuous delivery and no downtime and everything as we are, there's still some things that I only do late on Saturday night, even if <laughs> even if I feel like they are going to seamlessly roll over, uh, you know, because uh, maybe they won't. And uh, and so probably late on a Saturday yeah. night, we flip a feature flag and and everything starts routing very through. closely. Yeah, V2. That's that's how we've talked about doing that. I'll I'll get back to you when we do it. <laughs> that's the topic for the next podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ah, super interesting, Dave. So wrapping up, I guess, it's been fantastic. Again, you and I could talk for hours and I, I learned so much stuff. But with the time constraints we've got, what's, what's next on the agenda for you? What's the most exciting thing you and the team are working on over the next, say, three months until we chat again? Yeah, I'm excited about the observability work we're about to do because we have logs and metrics and traces, but they're all kind of separate from each other. They're They're hard to correlate and put together and it's not a very seamless experience. And and along with it, there's there's going to be a cultural change of ownership of alerting and stuff right now. Going back to the monolith on Heroku days, my team is the only team in PagerDuty. And we just have a lot of things that, you know, there's Slack alerts and stuff, but it's not, it's not a pure tooling challenge. It's a cultural challenge. And not even a cultural yep. challenge because people resist it or don't want to do it. It's, it's, you know, most of the time it's skill, not will, right? It's yeah, yeah. not knowing how or why, right? And so that's the next big chunk is how do we make it easy to get your observability? But then there's a lot of education because rate error duration gets you so far. But what we really want is people to be thinking critically about what needs to be monitored in their application. Mm, yeah, and we yeah. have people to lean on. That's not just going to be me. You know, I'm not the like the guru of this inside the company. You know, we have a lot of skilled people who who know the answer to that. But passing that knowledge has not been a huge priority. And I, yep, yep. it's going to it's going to be now. Oh, I want to know how deep this queue is. Right. Yep. Or or taking problems that occur and turning them into actionable metrics with alerts from there on. Yeah. yeah out. Yeah. Right. Like that. That's kind of the the education that has to happen. So and and quite honestly, to, to not make it sound like I have my act together completely, like that's a process that we have to like we have that knowledge on my team. We have not really had time to act on it. And partially because we are responsible for all of for all of the glue. You know, we run yep. Jaeger, we run Ambassador, we run the entire Sumo Logic metric and log export stack, mm. and we run Linkerd. And right mm. now I don't have alerts telling me if Linkerd is down. Right. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And and so that's that's a process like my team has to go through over the next couple months is is getting all that on and that's a fun challenge because I didn't write those services. I have to really think critically about what alerts I need off of them because I don't have inherent knowledge necessarily of how all those things, I mean, I know how they work, but like, you know, what, I, what would I want to know about this thing if, if things were going wrong? And, yeah. and then there's an additional layer of challenge there, which is like, if you know that things are going wrong from your Prometheus metrics, how do you know when Prometheus is down? Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Who watches the watches? Isn't it? Right. Exactly. And so that's led to some fun stuff. Like, setting alerts in Stackdriver for when Prometheus is down, you know, <laughs> um, like, oh, cool. I know here that my pod is bad. The pod that tells me if pods are good or bad, you know, it, it's just, a, it's a it's hard just... problem, isn't it? Yeah. I've literally just published a podcast with Sam Newman and he made an interesting observation, something I've sort of bumped into, but he crystallized it really nicely in that often when we start, we think about um, what's going wrong, but as you scale, you actually have to look at what's going right. And then when it's not, right any longer that's the cue for the action 
And he talks a lot about semantic monitoring. Can you actually do the business actions? And if you can't do the business actions, then it's a cue to actually investigate where in the platform is stuff broken. Yeah, yeah. If I was if I was starting fresh with something today, I've been sold by charity majors from Honeycomb on the yeah, sort of philosophy of like you just you literally collect everything and and then you you slice and dice it every way you can so that you can find the point oh oh one percent. You know, my the quote from her that I love is like if it doesn't matter if you have four nines if the if the last nine is your biggest customer, right? Yeah. Or the the point oh 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 one or whatever of errors because the the systems now are so complex. Yeah, yeah. That it's hard. It's very difficult to predict what could go wrong, and you know, but it's dangerous to not have anything visibility into it. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So we'll be finding that balance this year. But that, that's what I'm most, most excited about coming next. Yeah, thanks, Dave. I see the next topic for the podcast is going to be progressive delivery and observability, kind of getting that feedback going there. So I'm looking forward already to chatting to you about that and seeing uh, what your oh, team of. And the other, real quickly, the other thing about that is that's when we bring support in too, because that's what support cares about the most. And yes. so there'll be a nice cultural piece of extending our consideration beyond the engineering team. Oh, yeah. The people are the hardest part. Yeah. The yeah. tech is sometimes, you know, easy. <laughs> Not yeah. always, but um, the people are the hardest part. So And support super. wants to be involved. We just even been thinking about them as a persona when we mm. build things. And we are, we are this year. So, yeah. Fascinating topic. Dave. I look forward to yeah, hearing your thoughts on that one. Uh, thanks for your time today, Dave. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Always love chatting with you.